Christians. And over the last, uh, gosh, five weeks, I guess, four or five weeks, uh, we talked about the reality that having an open door, that is to say to be a church that is welcoming and exhibiting the characteristics of the kingdom of God, means really two things. One, a transparency in our lives. That if we're going to grow in discipling one another in Christ, there is certainly no uh, benefit to us putting on an air or a mask that we're better than what we really are. That a measure and a reality of transparency is not only fundamentally important for how we care to one another, but of course inviting for both people who may move into town who are believers or for those wrestling with their spiritual faith and whether or not they are uh, want to be Christians, or Christ is calling to them. And so if they see us as fairly transparent and not pretending we're anything that we're not, that becomes a welcoming environment. Folks like reality. One of the criticisms against Christians is that we live somewhere other than reality. We have the freedom to live in the realist world that exists, the kingdom of God. But it's not just that somber reality of transparency, but it's also the beauty that because we can be transparent, we are free, and therefore we celebrate. And a significant part of what it means to be an open door or a hospitable church is letting one another see, as well as our neighbors around us, see the reality of celebration, the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ, and therefore the celebration that naturally comes from being set free. One isn't usually released from either a physical or a a spiritual burden and our response being, well, that was nice. Celebration uh, comes pretty quick there in Scripture. When someone is healed by Jesus, their response is usually pretty aggressive. Matthew throws a huge party when he comes to faith and Jesus shows up and hangs out with all of his friends. So celebration... And then last week we looked at the reality of what it means to have an open heart. And that in Scripture, heart is not just a seat of the emotion, but it is that central place of the human life. That God gives us a new heart because what we love has a significant and complete, significant and complete impact on what we think and what we do. That what we love determines what ideas and thoughts we will embrace and follow through into our actions. And then we looked at the reality that what, you know, when you see what you really love, how to find that out is see what you really think about where your mind goes most of the time and then also what your actions. Those two things. In fact, we see that this morning even in our text from James. True religion, don't just have it in your head. Have it in your hearts. And part of what it means then is for us to grow spiritually is to have an open heart. Not just an open mind to the theology, but that hopefully what is we do in all of the ministries where we teach and learn is that we are really aiming for heart transformation in order that our mind and our actions might be renewed. And lastly, this morning we're going to look at open hands. What does it mean then in response to the great forgiveness we have and the celebration we're able to enjoy and the newness of heart that we've been given? What is the reaction? What is God calling us to? This morning, let's put the text in front of us. Uh, It's from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, printed for you on that lovely salmon insert. Hear now God's word. Let love be genuine. 
Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another to show honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as so far it depends on you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you have not left us to figure this out on our own. But even so, your wisdom is too high for us. Without your spirit now this morning to open our ears and eyes, may we learn by what you have taught us. And may your words be spoken And all those words which are not of you, may they quickly be forgotten by your people. In Christ's name, amen. Human relationships are not all that complicated. However, they are exceedingly hard. Now what I mean by that is we all sort of know how to do human relationships. If I wrong somebody, I should apologize. Of course, there's the problem of me apologizing. And if I don't, then usually there's a little bit of distance and some messiness incurs. And then like 15 years down the road, we would say that a human relationship is exceedingly complicated because we have so many interwoven webs of failures to admit or failures to accept uh, somebody's apology or you know what I mean. Little wrongs, little slights, little hurts not mentioned, hurts not addressed. And before you know it, it looks like an exceedingly complicated mess, so intertwined in its webs that there's no way to untangle it. That to even begin to to pull at it is so likely to create uh, craziness that we just, we're afraid of it. It becomes too complicated. But at the beginning, isn't it true that really the problem was it was really hard to do what we knew we should have done back in the early phase of that relationship, back in the early phase of that friendship. You see, at its basic premise, the human relationship is not terribly complicated, but it is exceedingly hard. And what Christ calls us to in this passage this morning is the great difficulty of the human existence, how we are called to live in community, and what that looks like in stark, difficult transparency. The calling of what it means for us to live as Christians within the world and within 
our community of faith. And, unfor- well, fortunately, I suppose, I'm always looking for loopholes, so it's unfortunate for me. But fortunately, there is exceeding clarity in Paul's words here this morning. It fills in all of the questions we might have. And it really leaves very little to the imagination. But we're, what we're faced with right away is how hard it is. So first of all, we'll look at how hard it is. The hard things that we need to do. And then we'll look a little bit at the fact that we can't do it. And therefore, how will it ever get done? First of all, the hard stuff. As you look at this passage here in Romans, uh, there is a wonderful list. Abhor what is... uh, Well, first of all, verse 9, let love be genuine. Now, in our culture, that is exceedingly important. It's important in all time, in all place, to be sure. But our culture has embraced this idea of tolerance, which I would define to you as being, I don't care enough about you to have an opinion. And that may be a way to fake peace within a culture, to have a, a... Really a lack of engagement. If I tolerate you, is that really, do you really want to be tolerated? Of course not. As human beings, we desire to be loved. And therefore, the calling is not simply to tolerate one another. And in our brokenness and in our sin and in our failures and flaws, we're not simply called as Christians to tolerate one another or to tolerate the world. And in this first paragraph, it's really directed first and foremost within the body of Christ. We are called to let our love for one another be genuine, far more than the rather pale and weak idea of tolerance. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affections, all wrapped up in the genuineness of what it means to love and not simply tolerate. Outdo one another in showing honor. Honor versus pride. If love is sort of contrasted in our culture to tolerance, honor versus pride. We draw attention to ourselves. As human beings, it is an innate desire. Some of us do it passive-aggressively. Some of us do it by standing in the middle and waving our arms. Whether you do it one way or another, six, one, half, dozen, you're trying to draw attention to yourself. It's a human being kind of thing. And especially in our work, in ministry, in life, we're called to do a lot of things. And some of those things are more in front. Some of those things are behind the scenes. And what we're called to here is to honor all of that. And to honor one another as we serve and to, again, that doesn't mean, but it's no less than. I grew up sort of having an aversion to this. But you know what? The reality is with a text like this, those Sundays, I don't know if you remember experiencing in a church where the Sunday school teachers were honored, where those who served by setting up and taking, that's actually right and good. Can it be done poorly? Of course, human beings are doing it. But the reality is that can we and do we want to Acknowledge the reality that as we serve one another, not for ourselves, but as they serve us, that quiet acknowledgement and honoring the gifts that have been given to Christ's church. Because isn't that what we're really doing? We're honoring what Christ has done in someone's life. We're honoring what Christ is allowing someone to do in our midst. That even as we honor one another's gifts and talents and service to Christ's church, we're also honoring the reality of a God who brought that person into our midst. 
a God who is gracious enough to shower that person, that person's wisdom, that person's experience on us. You are the gifts of Christ to His church, and we need to honor that. Zeal versus presumption. Sometimes, in the Christian life, we feel the temptation to simply rest in Christ, which is good, but not rest in a good way, which is assumption. I assume that since I did a sinner's prayer, or got baptized, or learned my catechism, and I say that my only hope in life and in death is in Christ, and not in myself, that that box is checked. And quite frankly, in our modern culture, in our modern world, the way religious zeal is being played out, let's face it, the last thing I want to be is a zealot. Zealotry is not going well. It leads to extremism. It leads to... But what's the context here, dear friends? In brotherly love. Zeal for the work of caring for one another. Zeal for everything that's listed in these paragraphs. Not zeal for smiting those who don't believe the same thing we do. Zeal for love and mercy and service. That's what's being called for in this context. Zeal for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, as James has told us in his passage. Zeal for the alien that we read and care, uh, to care for in the passage in Exodus. The sojourner, the sojourner, the outsider that's brought into our midst. Zeal for seeing the love of Christ passed on to them as it has been given to us. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Hope versus fear there in Uh, Verse 12, rejoice in the hope. Again, cultures change often, and ours certainly is. And there are many things going well, and there are certain things that cause us all to concern, for concern. But does that cause us to fear? Or can we recognize the hope that we have in Christ? There will be things that will go well at Shehalem Valley, and there will be times of difficulty Do we fear or do we hope? And again, it's not sort of hope in an ethereal sense. It's the hope in the resurrection. It's the sure hope, the one that has already been proven true because the tomb is empty, right? That's our hope. And so if life is true and life exists and death no longer has the final word, can we ever completely be without hope? Paul calls us back to the hope that we have. Patience versus impatience. God takes His time. We're called here to be patient within the body of Christ. Again, seeing this paragraph is first and foremost directed towards us. And so as we live with an open hand to one another, as we live openly in sharing the generosity, right? That's what this stuff is. It's the generosity of God. Generosity of God's love. Generosity of the hope that God has poured out in us. Generosity of spirit. So we continue that with the generosity of patience. Especially in tribulation, right? Isn't that where we have the least patience? We want to act. We want to get it done. It's counterintuitive for us to be patient in the face of tribulation. Tribulation usually means that I want to get out of it as fast as I possibly can. I don't embrace tribulation. I embrace comfort. And to be patient in the midst of it.
to be in constant prayer. That's not easy to do. I don't see God very often. I see Him in some of you as you minister to me, to be sure, but God Himself, I don't see Him. How do I talk to Him constantly? Just as a quick note of maybe how to do your prayer life, I can't see God, which makes it very hard for me to pray silently because I get lost in my train of thoughts often. If you're seeking, just one idea that that somebody passed on to me that, that I've used to try and increase my prayer life, and it's actually been useful, I talk to a chair out loud because that's how I talk to people. And so I'll sit in my study, and I've got another chair in that study. I don't have it set up yet, but I have in the past. And I'll actually talk to the chair. Not as a chair, but as if I'm talking to my Heavenly Father. It keeps me focused. It keeps me on track through my prayers. But the reality of constant prayer, what a weight. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. To give of our material resources, our time and our finances. We're called to be generous with one another, to live with an open hand. Not to hoard. Not to keep it all inside. Not to keep it for ourselves. We're called to be generous. We're called to, in our place and time, to care for one another in our congregation as they are in hard times. I think I've told you this story before. It's not a story. It's, a, it's, it's part of your history. Or part of our shared history. In the 3rd century A.D., the church in Antioch, they found records, had 8,000 widows on their rolls. So receiving some measure of support. Now, of course, some of those, I'm sure, gave back to the church through their service. But 8,000. In our own days, we've got opportunities to support groups like uh, celebrate recovery, Habitat for Humanity. I got to meet with the uh, president, or the uh, executive director this week, and there's builds that are going on. There's Love Inc. There are so many things, both within our walls and outside, that we can give to. And the reality is that as a congregation, we're not yet particularized. We don't. We still share our budgets with our mother church, as Beaverton has been so gracious over the years to to lead and to care for this congregation. But as we move forward, part of that will be our own financial responsibility for caring for our church. And yes, I'm the guy standing up here, and right now I'm the biggest drain on your budget. But there are opportunities within our community. And the more generous we are here, the more generosity we will have, both within our walls and within our community. And when we do so, people notice an open hand and not a clenched fist. People notice the generosity. The world notices, and even if they don't notice, God's work is being done. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien are cared for. Those friends of ours in need of an extra hand. It doesn't just come with service and prayer and good intentions. It does come with the far from almighty but exceedingly useful dollar. But it's not just inside. It's outside, right? Which is really the second paragraph. 
The second paragraph has sort of inclusio at the beginning of 14 at the end of 21 that shows us that most of what's being talked about in the middle, this second paragraph is really directed outside the walls of the church. If all of these things start within our congregation, all of the things we've already spoken of, they don't stay within the walls of the church. They don't stay within this body of Christ. They get spread out into the uh, world around us. And so we have these exceedingly difficult calls. And responsibilities. Again, nothing here is in the, if, you ha- if you'd like to, tense of verbs. These are in the imperative tense. These are things we should be doing in our lives. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Not an easy thing to do. And in our day and age with instant media... Way too often when we sort of wrestle, I don't know how else to describe it, but I don't know that we would be known as a conservative American church of being people who bless those who curse us. I get the sense that we have a tendency to respond in kind, whether it's in the political world, whether it's in areas of morality, And we've lost our voice. We don't get heard as much as we used to be heard. Because we yell even louder, but the louder you yell doesn't seem to have the impact. Why? Well, because quite frankly, the Bible tells us that we bless those who persecute us. Can we say with a clear conscience that we have blessed those? And let's face it, in this country, we haven't even been persecuted. We've been annoyed, we've been concerned. But I mean, if our biggest fear is whether or not they take away our tax exemption, we're not being persecuted, my dear friends. Can we bless those who speak against us, who live different and seek to impose that on others? I mean, there, there are those we have deep and profound conflicts with. That's true. But so is the command to bless and not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Again, if the context here is outside the church, do you have anybody outside the church that you can rejoice in and share in the weddings of a child or the birth of a child or whatever it is that in their life, a promotion, those things in which cause people to rejoice? Do we rejoice with our neighbors as they rejoice? And are we welcome enough in their homes to weep when they weep? Of course, that's understood within the first paragraph as we love in brotherly kindness towards one another that we weep with those who weep. Paul brings it out here in the context of this passage and in this text, which is oriented towards our neighbors outside the body of Christ. Do we weep with those who weep? Do we grieve with the losses and the death and the consequences of sins that plague our neighbors as much as we do within the body. And as much as is possible, live in harmony with everyone. Enough said on the persecuted thing. But it's, it's tangential, as you might, they're connected. Harmony. Associate with the lowly. That's a hard thing to do 
a hard thing to do. Let's just be honest about it. Even wonderful ministries like uh, Young Life used to train its people that if you can get the head cheerleader and the head football guy to come, then everybody else will come. And so they spend all their ministry opportunities and challenges chasing the cool kids. Nothing wrong with cool kids. But interestingly enough, counterintuitively within Scripture, what does God say? Identify with the lowly. And actually, if you look at the history of the rise of Christianity, it wasn't because all of the Roman emperors became Christians that we got to where we are. In fact, it's probably because of them that we're where we are now. But before that, we associated with the regular folks. We were a church of outcasts and slaves. And yet the whole world was changed through the faithful ministry of those very lowly, normal people. Again, not a contrast between whether you're rich or poor and whether God loves you more, no. But there is a reminder here in Scripture that you may think with your human eye that the smart thing to do is to get all the political leaders and the popular people to buy into our faith and then it'll go well. But as we are regularly faced with the reality, you cannot legislate morality up. You can legislate it down. That's easy. Give permission to do bad things. But you cannot legislate it up. It's only by ministry and service with one another. And that starts at every level of society. Don't be wise in our own eyes. As we engage with the world, do we come off as smarter than we really are? Do we have all the answers? Are we dismissive of the questions that they ask? Or will we engage in the conversation? Not afraid of whether or not God's word will survive. For Pete's sakes, it's the eternal truth of the creator of the universe. You can't destroy it. And neither can those that ask questions. So we don't need to defend truth. We need to live it. And how do we exemplify the truth that comes through Christ? And that wisdom which comes through humility, not through we've got all the answers. And the silly scientists and political and social and psychiatrists who quit asking questions. Are we wise in our own eyes? What are the implications of being humble as we engage, even as we know the truth of Christ? Avoid evil. Well, that makes sense. Honorable, peaceable lives. Presbyterians have a long legacy of starting wars. Long legacy of starting wars, especially in England. But we may have started a couple over here too. Some of the founding fathers praised the usefulness of Presbyterian ministers and pulpits in getting people excited about the Revolutionary War. Again, not, I'm very happy to be an American. But as far as the church is calling, do we live peaceable and honorable lives? Is that what we're known for? Let the world deal with its rises and falls, its revolutions and its conflicts, its uh, imminent domain, imminent demise, imminent whatever. The kingdom of Christ transcends national boundaries, it transcends time and space, and it cannot be defeated. And therefore, in the peace and the sure knowledge... Live honorable and peaceable lives among those that you are placed in. And not seek vengeance. 
because vengeance is the Lord's. Two books I would strongly recommend to you on the topic of forgiveness. One by Bishop Desmond Tutu on the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that they did in South Africa. And what happens when forgiveness was stressed rather than justice alone in restoring a country that was ripped apart by horrific actions. Strongly, it's called No Peace Without Forgiveness. And then the second one is Exclusion and Embrace by, should have written down the author, Wolf. He's a Croatian. And he wrote this book in the midst of the Bosnian War as his people were being slaughtered. And somebody asked him, as a, he's a theologian at Duke University, and he was asked, so where's your forgiveness now? How do you as a Christian forgive when you know your brothers and sisters, men, women, and children are being slaughtered? How do you do it? Powerful books, both. Not a gut human reaction to bless those who have perpetrated violence on us. Feed and drink. Be generous. And again, first century, hungry, uh, famine, huge issue. People going hungry, huge issue. People eating three meals a day, non-existent. Okay, except for like 0.1% of some part of the population. They're eating maybe two meals a day. If they're lucky, and usually only one. And so you don't have a lot of food. And so when Paul in the first century says, share your food and drink with your enemy, huge step of faith. Well, how am I going to be provided for? If I'm giving the guy that wants to cut my throat food, how on earth am I going to feed my family? How does that work? And if we're being honest, we come to a point where we say, I can't. The standard's too high. The requirements are too high. Maybe I can do it within the church a little bit more than I'm doing it before. But when you get and you expand it to out to a community, and not just my community, because by and large Newburgh likes us, but the people who don't like me, who want ill done to me or to Christ's church, You want me to extend that same kind of love and mercy to them and the reality is there is not enough love in my little heart and not enough drive in my will to do that. If we're honest, we're in the same condition. How on earth can we do it? Well, it's important to know that even though we're reading chapter 12 here of Romans, that Paul has a wonderful way of writing all of his books. And in theology, we call it the indicative before the imperative. For 12 chapters leading up to this, Paul has told us who we are in Christ. You read Ephesians, you read Colossians, you read all those books. He will tell you who we are because of what Christ has done first before he ever gets to what we're reading right now, which is what we are supposed to do. So before we go any further, we've got to be reminded of the indicative, that which is true about you in Christ. On the cross, and, and this is no, no cheesy image, no trite or contrived image. The hands of Christ are open, palms out to us. 
On the cross, His hands are open wide. He lives and died with open hands. Open hands because we needed to receive infinite love and grace and forgiveness. Infinite acceptance. Infinite peace. Romans chapter 6, earlier in this, Paul describes it exactly like this. Therefore, since we have peace with God, why are you ungracious to your enemies? Because you're at war. What happens if there's peace? What happens because of Christ's peace given to us, we have peace with others? That we can live at peace with them because we have peace eternally. And not just that, but reconciliation, right? What is the challenge between humanity, one to another, and with the world, with those who are outside, who persecute the church of Christ? Of course, the problem is reconciliation. What does Christ say? We are given the ministry of reconciliation. We read it last week in our assurance of pardon. Therefore, since we have been reconciled to Christ, we become ambassadors of that reconciliation to one another and the world around us. We have been reconciled. We have been renewed. That which was made complicated by our sin has been simplified in the work of Christ. We look to the cross. And then in this idea of generosity, so reconciliation and we have peace with God and we have our hands open as Christ's hands were opened for us and we have become co-heirs with Christ. We have been given all of His inheritance. And that sounds like a nice little theological idea. And nine times out of ten, I certainly do not live like I have the wealth of Christ. I'm fearful about how much money. I'm fearful about resources of time and family. I'm a co-heir with Christ, and so are you. And you know, there are a lot of times when the, the, the language in Scripture is really gender neutral, but they use man or mankind. And I understand the desire to make those more inclusive. But when we come to a passage that says, you are a firstborn son, that has cultural significance. No one else in the family got anything. We've got to know that we are firstborn. We get everything with Christ. Why do you need to hold it in? What are you afraid of losing? You can't lose it. Whatever it is to you, you have been given it. And it's a simple idea. But it's a hard idea, isn't it? To look at the cross, to look at His open hands, to know these principles, to know these truths, that we have been given everything, that we've been reconciled, that we're at peace God promises that the more we hold on to and meditate and embrace those truths, the Holy Spirit will apply them to our hearts and we can live free. Live free enough to be generous. Live free enough to open ourselves to our enemies. Live free enough to forgive those who have wounded us. The only way forward, as we look forward, to the life of Shehalem Valley and our deep and significant hope and belief that this church will live long after we have all gotten to go to rest. But as we lay the foundation now, the only way forward, my dear friends, is not to play church. Not to organize things in a way that may uh, be expedient at the time. 
but to lay the foundation that is presented to us here in God's Word in Romans chapter 12, which is one of open hands. Open hands to one another, open hands to our neighbor, to our enemy, to our friend. Because sometimes if we, you know what I mean by playing church? Majoring on the things that are more distinctive than they are, the significance. Not that those don't have a place, but we don't wear them on the front door. And we certainly don't make our distinctives a prerequisite to coming to Christ. All you need is to confess your need for Christ. There's no theological test. Do we remember that? Growth happens over years. People don't have to buy all our intricacies to be a member of this church to be a part of our fellowship and our body yes as you grow in leadership the the more understanding or the more uh, commitment to some of our distinctive sure but are our hands open to those who are wrestling with their faith wrestling with distinctives are we fiddling while Rome burns fiddling with our little idiosyncrasies I hate to lose. I really do. And I really hate to lose when I have everything on my side, when there's no way I should be losing. And most of us are wrestling with the church today and in Christianity in America because it seems like all around us we're losing. And I don't have all the reasons why the church has lost its presence and its prestige in this culture But I do know that for us to win, we have to embrace this reality of openness. We also have to define what winning means. And let me define what I think winning means. It's not about numbers. It's not about how much money comes in. It's about God in ever greater degrees feeling like we are a safe enough place to send His most tender shoots. Those wrestling with their faith. Are we a place for the most wounded? Will He trust us with those that the culture says are outcasts? If we are blessed be able to serve then we're winning let's pray Heavenly Father again we thank you that you have blessed us Lord please give us the strength not to live in fear let us open our hands let us open our hearts and may your kingdom and your glory be brought ever nearer through us. In Christ's name, amen. If the ushers would come forward, we'll take uh, this opportunity to give back a portion of what God has given